through the internet operation that we have. And week after week, it's a joy to know different countries uh, are listening and they're watching. Uh, we are a part of our website ministry, but we also are a part of Sermon Audio, and every sermon that we preach is recorded. And therefore, we have people everywhere who listen to the ministry of this church. That's why it is so important for two things. Number one, you need to pray for your pastor. We're not concerned so much about what Dan Cozart thinks. Second of all, we're concerned about what the Bible teaches, what the Word of God teaches. Preachers are a dime a dozen, and that's inflation. It really is. I hope you'll turn with me this morning in the book of Matthew, chapter number 16, for our basic reading. We're doing a series of studies on the subject of the church, the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not know of too many other subjects in the Bible in which there is so much confusion as this one. People not only have problems with the church, in understanding what the scripture teaches, but they have problems attending the church. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday morning, to begin with, that there were people out where my wife and I live here in Tyler. It's like a spiritual graveyard on Sunday morning. Nobody's getting up to go to church. There was a time when just about everybody went to church. I have held revivals all over everywhere, and I'm telling you, sometimes more unsaved people would come to God's house than those who claim to know the Lord because everybody went to church. We don't have that today. People go where they want to go. They do what they want to do, and they defy the Lord's day in doing it. And it comes to a place where, my dear friends, we no longer have to say, why are we having so much judgment today on our nation? I think we know why. So please turn with me in Matthew chapter 16. We'll read that passage, and we probably will be dealing with it more in detail in the future because there are going to be some other messages that we bring to you in this series. But in Matthew chapter number 16, the Bible says, beginning with verse number 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, he was asking for man's opinion. And they said, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, 
but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Last Sunday, I introduced this subject to you under the caption of introducing the New Testament church. And we're going to be repeating just a little bit of that this morning in the event you may be here and were not with us last Sunday morning. It's one of the disadvantages of preaching sermon series. I love to do that. Because when I wake up Monday morning, I know exactly which way I'm going to be driving my automobile next Sunday. But sometimes the disadvantage is that if you are not faithful in attending your church during a series of sermons, you're going to miss a whole lot of the messages and a lot of what the pastor has tried to prepare to bring for your hearing. So let's think about that this morning today. The subject is entitled, The Ecclesia of Jesus Christ. Why would we say the Ecclesia of Jesus Christ? It is the word that is translated in verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. And in the Greek, it is the word Ecclesia. Now you can spell that with two C's. I prefer doing it with two K's, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-O-L-O-G-Y, ecclesia or ecclesiological. reason I like to do that is because, my dear friends, it is a very important word, and it's one that you should include in your vocabulary. When you talk to other people about spiritual matters, whenever you're talking about the church, you're talking about the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. So we want to give great attention to that term in the message today. Ecclesia. You were with us last Sunday. We tried to stress the importance. That word is found 118 times in the King James Version of the Bible. It is used only in three ways. Out of all the times that it's mentioned, it's used in only three ways. Number one, it is used in reference to the assembly of Israel. Reason, assembly, because that's basically what the word means. Ecclesia means assembly, a coming together. It's used as the assembly of Israel. I pointed out to you last week that in Acts chapter number 7, verse 38, the word is translated church. It should not be translated church. It should have been translated assembly. Look at it, if you would, please. Acts chapter 7, verse number 38. This passage in Acts has to do with Stephen after he was ordained or appointed to be a deacon in the church, went out and began to preach and he stirred up 
a lot of problems because he was preaching truth. And in so doing, the Pharisees challenged him on it. And finally, the chief priest or the high priest in verse 1 said unto Stephen, Are these things so that you're talking about? And that triggered Stephen an opportunity or gave him an opportunity to give unto the high priest a history of Israel, a history of the Jews. And that's what he's doing here in the seventh chapter of Acts. He's coming down and talking about Moses. Notice in verse number 20, he says, In which time Moses was born, was exceeding fair, and nourished up of his father's house three months. And he goes on down to elaborate about the man Moses and what Moses did and the time period of his life, 40 years. You find it in uh, verse 30, 23 and verse number 29, 30, and then you find it in verse number 36. And in his continuing that, according to the King James Version of the Bible, he said, this is he, this is Moses, that was in the church. Now, Moses wasn't in the church. The church wasn't there to be in during the administration of Moses. The church is not an Old Testament doctrine. It is a New Testament doctrine. And it comes along when Christ said to Peter upon this rock, I will build my church ecclesia. Now, strange as it may seem, Stephen had the same terminology here. This is he that was in the church, but the translation is the church. It should have been in the assembly. I have in my study many, many books. One of those books has to do with comparing translation to translation. And you may be interested in knowing that this particular book, it gives you four different translations of every verse in the Bible. And they're lined up under one column, two, three, four columns. Under the church column, that is under the King James Version that is translating it church, the Amplified New Testament translated assembly. The New American Standard translates it assembly. And then the International Translation translates it assembly. Well, I prefer that. Now, I don't prefer the translations. I don't care if I, I'm a King James man, been preaching out of the King James Bible for 69 years, and I about believe it's true. I really do. Uh, but I'm just telling you that the emphasis was, should have been ecclesia, meaning assembly. So sometimes the assembly, that word ecclesia, this is a good example of it, of how it refers to the assembly of Israel in the Old Testament. Secondly, it refers to the assembly of Jesus Christ. Church is used when Christ said that to Simon Peter to show the kind of assembly that it would be. 
Now, when you go back to that passage in Matthew and go over to chapter number 18, I believe it is. Yes, chapter 18. Notice the instruction that the Lord is giving to his disciples about the church. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, you go tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it, to the church. Well, if the church is universal and invisible, how can you tell it anything? It is a local body of baptized believers who have come together to carry out the commands of Christ. But it refers to the assembly of Jesus Christ, this church that we're talking about. And then, number three, it sometimes refers to the assembly at Ephesus. And that's a very interesting one because in Acts chapter number 19, the apostle Paul went into Ephesus and he was not greeted. Chapter 19, verse 1, it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, he came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples there he found a nucleus of believers in Ephesus. And when he got there, he began to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Verse 20 said, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Well, it prevailed by that little handful of disciples, but it didn't prevail with the people because they were idolatrous people. They were people who believed in the goddess Diana. And there was a man who was a member of that particular religion that had the people build these little golden images of Diana. They could put them on their tables at home. They could put them uh, anywhere they wanted to because Diana was their God. And you can imagine the clash that must have resulted when Paul said there's only one way to be saved and that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church, that group of people that was there, uh, the, the disciples, we do not know at that particular point, and it's immaterial, but it's the, the fact of what the people of the city did. In verse number 32, therefore cried one thing and another, for the assembly was confused. That word is ecclesia. Why? Because the word ecclesia means assembly. Assembly. You find it in verse 32. You find it in verse 39. And you also find it in verse number 41. Well, what was that assembly? It was a town council. It was a meeting of the legal minds of the people who lived in Ephesus. And their town was being torn apart by this preacher, Paul talking about the resurrection of Christ. And the town council was called to do something about this prophet, this preacher, Paul. But I'm pointing that out to show you the word ecclesia means assembly. 
assembly. If you do not get anything out of this message this morning, get out of it assembly. When Jesus Christ said upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, it is his church. It is not my church. It is not the church of the board of deacons. It is not the church of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is the church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's very important that you see that. You have the assembly of Israel. You have the assembly of Christ. You have the assembly at Ephesus. Ecclesia is translated church or churches 112 times in the New Testament. It's almost like the Holy Spirit wanted you to get that. It's there 112 times. 96 times it clearly refers to a visible and local church, such as we have in our economy today. We talk about this church and that church and the other church, and we're always referring to a group of people who meet and assemble, ecclesia. But the Bible specifies that. The church at Jerusalem the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Smyrna, the church at Laodicea. They were literal assemblies of people that are gathered together. Some didn't have as many attending as others did, and it was to that group, he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name. He's talking about the ecclesia. I will be in their midst. And then you've got the remaining 16 times refers to the church in a generic or an institutional sense. It's like the institution of the home. It is like the institution of the school. Both home and school are made up of visible and local homes and schools. If there were no local homes and schools in our, uh, pardon me, local homes and schools in our churches, in, in our situation, you could not possibly have homes and schools or a school system. Talking about it being used generically. One of the best examples I know of that, and you do well to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Watch this. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, if that we're talking about a local, organized church as we know churches to be. Which church was it that he loved? You immediately can see the need of having a generic, the church system. For instance, in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I do not believe that refers to the church at Jerusalem. That was the first church. But that did not come until later. It was a generic 
church, an institutional church, what Christ was saying upon this rock, I will build the institution of the church. Since that day, 2,000 years have passed, and there are a lot of churches that got started back then that are no longer in existence today. But the institution of the church is still here. You see that? And will always be here till the Lord comes the second time. Ecclesia is never used to mean a universal and invisible church. <clears throat> what is the Greek word translated church? It's ecclesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Ecclesia. What is the meaning of the word ecclesia? It is a assembly of baptized believers who have come together for the purpose of carrying out the commands of Christ. How is ecclesia used in the New Testament? We've already covered that. How is ecclesia used as church in the New Testament? Out of the many times it is listed, it clearly refers to a visible local assembly. You can't read the book of Revelation and get away from that local assembly. Under the church at Ephesus, right. Under the church at Pergamos, right. Under the church at Thyatira, right. Under the church at Laodicea, right. Those seven churches were real, real assemblies of believers, baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And 16 times it refers to church generically, as we've just previously mentioned. I do like the definition. It's an assembly of voluntary baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, assembled for the purpose of carrying out the commands of Christ. Now, there are three major views of the church. What are they? Number one, there is a universal and visible, not invisible, there is a universal and visible assembly. That's the view of Roman Catholicism. If you wanted to see the Roman Catholic Church, you have to go to Rome. If you wanted to see a Roman Catholic Church, you just have to drive down the street to Front Street because there's one there, and they're everywhere that way. That concept believes in a universal, visible assembly that the Roman Catholic Church is a visible church. Not only can you see it, but it is everywhere, visibly. Universal and visible. The mother church is located in Rome, and it has churches all over the world, and they all belong to the Roman Catholic Church. And Rome controls all of these Catholics because they belong to a part of the massive, visible, and universal 
assembly. There is no salvation apart from the church of Rome. There's no such teaching that you can be saved and believe anything you want to and be a Catholic. No, when you become a Catholic, you're a Catholic. And their contention is it is absolutely essential. The Roman Catholic view. Again, that view states that the church is a universal and visible assembly. This system allows a worldwide universal organization with headquarters in Rome where the Pope rules over this universal, invisible, no, no, his visible, it's visible, this visible church. Number two, there is the Protestant view. The Protestant view. This view states that the church is a universal and invisible assembly referred to as the body of Christ. Protestants were forced to either accept Catholic baptism as valid or admit they made a mistake in leaving the Roman Catholic system. So they agreed the church was universal but could not continue with Rome being the physical head. Therefore, they invented the term the invisible church. That's a Protestant view. Now, don't get too worried about that. If you're a Baptist, you're not a Protestant. You didn't protest to get out of the Roman Catholic Church. I got news for you. The Roman Catholic Church protested to get out of the Baptist Church. That's another day and another study. And thirdly, there's the biblical view. This view teaches the church to be a local and visible assembly. A local and visible assembly. Baptist scholars have supported this view down through the ages with conviction Great scholars holding to this are B.H. Carroll, H.B. Taylor, J.R. Graves, Thomas Armitage, S.H. Ford, T.T. Eaton, Arthur Pink, Jesse Thomas, and hundreds of others. Would you like to know what Mr. B.H. Carroll had to say about it? Very intelligent man in his day and long since been in heaven with the Lord. In his book on Ephesians, page 166, Carroll states the whole of the modern Baptist idea of a now universal invisible church was borrowed from the pedo-Baptist confessions of faith in the Reformation. And the pedo-baptists devised it to offset the equally erroneous idea of the Romanist universal and visible church. They would not go along with that concept. They wanted to change it up a little bit. Would you be interested in knowing what Arthur Pink? <clears throat> Tighten your seatbelt. Had to say in his studies in the scriptures... December issue 1927. 
Now, the kind of church which is emphasized in the New Testament is neither invisible nor universal. It is visible and local. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. And those who know anything of the language are agreed that the word signifies an assembly. Now, an assembly is a company of people who actually assemble. That's profound, isn't it? If they never assemble, then it is a misuse of language to call them an assembly. Therefore, as all of God's people never have yet assembled together, there is today no universal church because there is no universal assembly. Is that okay? I know it's not, but it's all right. It's going to get better. Jesse Thomas wrote The Church and the Kingdom, page 275 in his book. He says, A church universal, composed of a disintegrated, unorganized throng of members of all the churches, is from the functional point of view inconceivable. How could an indistinguishable, unrecognizable company of God's elect the invisible church serve either the one purpose of a church or the other. J.R. Graves wrote a book, wrote a lot of books, Why Be a Baptist on page 47. The two essential ideas in the word ecclesia are assembly and organization. Every illustration of a church in the New Testament makes the various nonsense if it is not assembled and organized. Thomas Armitage, in his History of Baptists, pages 188 through 120, made this statement. In the apostolic age, the church was a local body, and each church was independent of every other church. A local church fully expresses the meaning of the word ecclesia wherever it is found in holy writ. Three major views of the church. The Roman Catholic view, the Protestant view, and the New Testament view. And highly supported by these men of the cloth. Now, a clarification of terms. Those holding to an invisible. You say, why do you keep talking about invisible? Because you can belong to the invisible universal church and never go to church. Yeah. That's contributing to this idea today why there's so few people in some of our churches because you don't have to go to church anymore. As I told you last week, I spoke with a man who said, I, I, I said, where do you go to church? He said, I don't go to church. I belong to the invisible church. I said, who's your pastor? I want to know who he is. And especially I want to know how can he be invisible? Is he everywhere? It is a local 
body of baptized believers assembled together for the purpose of carrying out the commands of Christ. That's what a church is. It is not invisible. It is not universal. It's always local. It's always visible. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst. We have some other terms in the Bible that are very interesting. One is called the family of God. The family of God. The family of God is not the ecclesia. The family of God is the Greek word P-A-T-R-I-A, patria. Patria, meaning ancestry or lineage. This includes all of the children of God, whether they are in heaven or on this earth. If they trusted Christ as their Savior, they became a Christian, a child of God, while they were on this earth. And when they died, they were still a child of God. And in heaven today, they're in heaven, but they're still a child of God. One enters the family of God when they are saved. We're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.26. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, whether Baptist or not. Would you not agree to that? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. You may be a different denomination today other than the Baptist, but if you believe in evangelicalism and conservatism, those people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him as their Lord and Savior are saved as well as those who are found in a Baptist church. We're not the only ones going to heaven. Oh, I could open the door on that, but I won't. The family of God, this includes all the children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do we say our Father who art in heaven? He's the Father of all who believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. But the family of God is not the church, not the ecclesia. What about the kingdom of God? That is the Greek word basileia. He did not say upon this rock, I will build my kingdom or my basileia. He said, I will build my ecclesia. There's a difference in that. This includes all the children of God who are living on this earth. When we are saved, we come under the rule of God in our hearts. This is a restricted number of God's children in that dead believers are no longer in the kingdom of God. Why? Because they experience physical death and they are no longer under the rule of God on this earth. So they're not in the kingdom of God. And then the clarification of terms, the church of God, which is ecclesia. And we started off with that one a week ago in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 47. And there were added to the church such as were being saved. They were baptized and added to the church. This includes all who've received Christ as Savior and have followed the Lord in water baptism. No one can be a member of the Lord's church without water baptism. I believe that's so. 
because 3,000 people made a profession of faith on the day of Pentecost and they were added to the church, but not until they were all 3,000 baptized. They came into that local church situation, you see. Water baptism and assembly are not essential in the family of God, neither in the kingdom of God, but the church requires baptism and assembly, a coming together. Only two kinds of churches, basically, only two kinds of churches. There are true New Testament churches, and then second of all, there are erroneous churches. He said, Brother Cozart, one reason why I don't like you, you got to get more reasons than that. One's just not enough. Get you a whole handful. It's because you speak lightly of people who don't agree with what you say the Bible teaches. My dear friends, the Bible is not a universal book to be interpreted by people as they want to hear it. Okay? And we have a right. You know, Paul, the apostle, uh, he, I don't know how, how, if whether he went to ethics school or not, I don't know about that. I know he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. His doctrine was conveyed that way. But uh, this business, you got you to get done. Everybody's going to heaven. No, ma'am, they're not. Everybody ain't going to heaven. There is a, a commercial on television that says, if you died today, will you go to heaven? And that's as far as they go with it. And I said to my wife, they, they, don't, they left it a little bit there. If you died today, would you go to heaven? Uh, let, me, let me say this. If you wouldn't, you'd die and go to hell. That's awfully hard, isn't it, Brother Cozart? That's what the Bible talks about. Jesus Christ was the greatest hell preacher that ever came along. You study what Christ had to preach about hell. What I'm saying unto you is this, my dear friend, that there are true churches and there are those that are not true churches and it's based on their interpretation of the Bible. And some of them don't even go as far as inter interpreting the Bible. It's just polity. This is what the fathers had to say. Who cares about the fathers? The fathers were born just like me. And you know who my daddy was? Adam in the Garden of Eden. And so was yours. And when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, we ate it. And when he fell into sin, we all fell into sin. That's why the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the reason I don't like some of these religious people being called father or reverend. I had that on my statement, some, on my bank statement when I ordered checks. But they put in a Reverend Cozart. I said, take it off. Well, why don't you want Reverend Cozart on that? Because I ain't Reverend. I'm just a sinner who was saved by God's blessed grace. And that's the most you and I can say. And it comes by the grace of God. But what am I saying? The true New Testament churches 
In Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Very important. It means that whatever the church was when Christ established it, that church, not the local assembly, he wasn't talking about Jerusalem church. The church of Jerusalem is not even there today because it's been done away with. But in the concept, the, the, the generic sense of the church, it's still with us. That's why we still have churches today. And I'm sorry, Mr. Bush. And I'm also sorry, Mr. whatever his name is. I, I've watched the president of the United States so long, I can't even think. Ever get there? I don't even, I'm like Joe Biden. I don't know what day it is. You're welcome. But what I'm saying to you is this. They're true New Testament churches. And we still have true New Testament churches today. Here it is. This is our charter book right here. This is, this is what we go, go by. That's a constitution. And then there are erroneous churches. Paul makes it clear in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And that is a very stout, very stout statement he makes in, in, pardon me, in Galatians chapter 1. Verses 6 through 9. Look at it if you would please. I want you to see it. And not just that I'm reading it for you. In Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you've received, let him be accursed. That word accursed means let him be damned. Who in the world said that? Apostle Paul. The only man I know of came close to that was John the Baptist and, and he had to stop because he cut his head off. Standing for the truth. Let me tell you something. You stand for the word of God. Stand for what the scripture teaches. And there are erroneous churches. These are not true churches of the Lord Jesus. They're religious assemblies but not true churches. They have perverted not only the gospel, but baptism as well. Not everything that's called a church is really a church. There is a cereal called Grape Nut Flakes, which is neither grapes nor nuts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dismiss you in a moment. Qualifications to being one of the Lord's churches. Do we qualify? Do we qualify? First of all, you have to have the right founder. Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Catholicism is based on popery. And it is also based upon the fact that Simon Peter was the first pope. <laughs> Total impossibility. Simon Peter could not be the first pope. I don't know what they're doing today, but there's a time. You can't, you can't be married and be a pope. Celibacy. Celibacy. Simon Peter was married because Jesus Christ cured and healed his mother-in-law. Now, if you got a mom-in-law, you've been married somewhere. Okay? Is that all right? You say, well, now, where do you find that? Of all places, the Bible. <laughs> Presbyterianism was founded, pardon me, Catholicism was founded by Pope Leo in 440 A.D. Presbyterians were founded by John Calvin. Lutherans were founded by Martin Luther. Methodism was founded by John Wesley. Mormonism was founded by Joseph Smith. Those who belong to these assemblies follow the leaders of the assemblies. Must have the right founder. It was founded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, it must have been at the right time. When was the church founded? In 30 A.D. Not on the day of Pentecost. Come next Sunday morning, would you? Be sure you're here next Sunday morning. We're going to talk about the growth and the origin of the New Testament. When did it start? When it actually, when did it really begin? There's a right time. If it was begun in the Old Testament, then it's not a true church. If it did not begin until the time after the death of Christ, it is not a true church. He said, I will build it. I'm going to do it. And he did it. And he's still doing it today. It involves the right place. Where did he build it? Palestine. Sometimes I get carried away and I say the wrong thing and then I wonder when I say it, did I say it right? I, I say Palestine. No, it's not Palestine. It's Palestine. That's where it was. And you have to have the right baptism. Now, listen, just listen. The word means, baptism comes from the Greek word baptize, meaning to immerse or to dip. Sprinkling and pouring do not qualify. You say, well, I, I just kind of look at it different there, Brother Cozart. I, I just kind of believe... You know, uh, if it's what's in your heart. No, that's what the problem is, what's in your heart. You can call a giraffe a pole cat. And you say, you know what, I really believe that with all my heart. Whew, you got problems. It is what it is. You have to have a right supper. That's the Lord's Supper that commemorates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you have to have the right doctrine. What is the right doctrine? It's called the Apostles' Doctrine. You want to know what the Apostles believe? They believe what Jesus Christ taught them for three years before he died and went to heaven. 
The doctrine of a church must measure up to the teachings of the New Testament or else it is not a church. I remind myself of this every time I get in this pulpit that if I am not teaching according to the teaching of God's blessed word, then it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of God's time. I only have one thing to preach, and that's this book. And if I'm wrong, you talk to me in a civil tongue. We can talk about this. But we're talking today about the Lord's ecclesia. Next Sunday, we want to talk about the origin and growth of the church. Not only did it start, but it started multiplying. And all of a sudden, the church became the churches. The churches. I hope you'll be with us at that time. Let's please stand for prayer.